Amen. Our confessional reading this evening is Lord's Day 40, page 247. We had... Uh, first six of the eight Beatitudes the last two Sunday evenings uh, for those who were here, and, and we saw how those went with Lord's Day 23 and 24, and so then last Sunday, I'm speaking with the elders, and it's, it's like, well, maybe it would be good if we can take all the Beatitudes. We've only got two left, or three, depending on how you count, and uh, but, the, but the last Beatitudes which have a unity in theme, they don't go at all with Lord's Day 25. And so we're going to jump ahead to Lord's Day 40. And they definitely go with Lord's Day 40. And, uh, and then Lord willing, we'll jump back to uh, Lord's Day 25 and, and, and pick up back and continue on uh, next Sunday. Uh, but for tonight, so that uh, not only continue in the catechism, but we also make it through all of the Beatitudes, we go to Lord's Day 40, and I'll read the questions. Let's together say answers for 105, 106, and 107, beginning with question 105. What is God's will for you in the sixth commandment? I am not to belittle, hate, insult, or kill my neighbor, not by my thoughts, my words, my look or gesture, and certainly not by actual deeds. And I am not to be party to this in others. Rather, I am to put away all desire for revenge. I am not to harm or recklessly endanger myself either. Prevention of murder is also why government is armed with the sword. Does this commandment refer only to murder? By forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, envy, hatred, anger, vengefulness. In God's sight, all such disguised forms of murder. Question 107, is it enough then that we do not murder our neighbor in any such way? No, by condemning envy, hatred, and anger, God wants us to love our neighbors as ourselves, to be patient, peace-loving, gentle, merciful, and friendly toward them to protect them from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. With that, brothers and sisters, let us turn to the very Word of God. We will come to the, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, those Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, page 1029, in the Bibles under the seats. And we'll read, we'll read verses 1 to 12, and we'll be looking at verses 9 to 12. 
Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So far the reading. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our Lord endures forever. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the world has always had unrest. Going all the way back to Adam and Eve, to, uh, to the dispute between Cain and Abel, there has always been a lost peace upon this earth. And so we can consider some of the unrest in uh, the days of Jesus Christ. We can consider how the zealots were a political party of the Jewish people and they were specifically seeking to stir up unrest. They were seeking to stir up a, a rebellion of arms against the Roman soldiers. So as D.A. Carson once put it, quote, this beatitude must have been shocking to the zealots when Jesus preached it, when political passions were inflamed, end of quote. We know that political passions can be inflamed, maybe even, maybe even more so as people uh, turn away from God. They put their trust in political passions and political causes and there are many, there are many passions that are inflamed. But there is not only a loss of peace in the political realm, there is a loss of peace and there is strife wherever you find people. There is strife in a classroom. There is strife in a workplace. Sadly, we know there can even be strife in a church, in a home. And so God's blessed ones are called to the high and difficult calling of peacemaking. And peace, as much as it is possible here on earth, and then finally the perfect peace of heaven where persecution will be over. Peace is the word that unites these last Beatitudes. Our theme this evening is this, God's blessed ones have peace in the name of Jesus. We're going to look first at verse 9. Blessed are Christ's peacemakers. And then the last beatitude, which is sometimes called a double beatitude. 
So is it one or is it two? It's a double beatitude. It's two in one. Blessed are Christ's long sufferers will be our second point. Blessed are Christ's peacemakers. Why is there so much lack of peace? It's because of sin. That is why peace is lost. And just as for those who are here, we have emphasized uh, throughout some of these beatitudes, especially with blessed are those who mourn, where does that begin? It begins with our own mourning over our own sin. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Where does that begin? It rightly begins when we hunger and thirst for our own righteousness. So when we think about the need for peace and the fact that there is no peace and that peace is lost because of sin, here too we must begin, brothers and sisters, with ourselves. We must begin with an acknowledgement of our own sin, with a paying attention to our own sin. That is where peacemaking begins. Consider, brothers and sisters, how Jesus spoke about important key components of peacemaking in Luke 17, verse 3, and what Jesus said first in that verse. Pay attention to yourselves if your brother sins. Rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. Three essential steps in peacemaking. And where does Jesus begin that verse? Pay attention to yourselves, and then rebuke others, and then if he repents, forgive him. And Jesus gives us the same kind of pattern in many places. We think also of Matthew 7. Pay attention to yourself first. Take the log out of your own eye. Then you can look at the speck in your brother's eye. And so uh, peacemaking begins with our self. And then if we almost use Luke 17.3 as our outline to detail what peacemaking is, peacemaking includes if your brother sins, rebukes him. And so, what is peacemaking not? Peacemaking is not the attitude of appeasement. It is not, let's just always agree to get along. It is not, let's just ignore what goes on. That's not true peacemaking. That's what some have called cheap peace. It's something that often parades around today under the name of toleration. This is not a true peacemaking. Brothers and sisters, it is true that sometimes we can agree to disagree. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 might be an example of that. It is true that sometimes we hear the command that love covers a multitude of sins. Sometimes we don't need to make a big deal out of things. But true peacemaking is interrelated with the other Beatitudes, including blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. True peacemaking does not just say, okay, whatever, everything goes. True peacemaking is tied to a desire for righteousness. Again, Luke 17:3, forming a little bit of our outline to think about peacemaking. If your brother sins, rebuke him. That is included in true peacemaking. Avoiding problems and forsaking righteousness is never a path to real peace. 
Speaking about the realm of the church, John Stott once described how sometimes there's a version of cheap peace that shows up under the sub-branch of cheap evangelism. And so there is a, a church that has no discipline. It tries to gather saints without any discipleship. I once heard of a, of a minister and uh, he was seeking to disciple new believers. And after months of working with these new believers, he went over some, some things that we would think would be basic to the Christian faith, uh, such as, uh, you know, if, uh, if you get married, as it, it was a couple, and they were hoping to get married. And he said, if, if, you, you know, if you get married, you know, you, somehow the topic of abortion came up. And then come to find out, while this couple was being discipled and while there were some things about church that they liked, all of a sudden that was a stopping point. I can't become a Christian if it, if it means we can't control our marriage in that way. And it's this, there can be attitudes of cheap peace, cheap evangelism, where you just gather without any discipleship, where you would just gather without digging into what, is, what does the word of God call us to? Anything from that to all kinds of things that the Word of God calls us to. And so there's cheap peace that has a sub-branch called cheap evangelism. And at its very worst, it is a declaration of life through Christ without, without any word about repentance, without coming back to first paying attention to ourselves and repenting of our own sins. These are all... John Stott says, quote, forbidden shortcuts, end of quote. And we know how tempting shortcuts can be. Are there any shortcuts in your life that have just looked really tempting? Thought, I just really want that one. I know what one of them was when I was in junior high. When I was in junior high. I was a substitute on a paper route. And... There was this one house, and it was kind of on the corner, and it was it was an old style route. You had to bring the paper up to the to the door for every house, and it would have been so much quicker if you could just take that little jog and just get to the next doorway and get around that corner, and you could cut off so much state. But I knew, I knew, there was one house where the owner specifically said, you know, the paper boy should not be on my lawn. And he had a right to say that. And I could not take that shortcut. Well, brothers and sisters, there's all kinds of shortcuts in our life that are tempting. And there are tempting shortcuts for true peacemaking. But let us let us know that true peacemaking uh, does not just avoid all problems. It does not forsake righteousness. And before we continue on, we're not to our second point yet, but before we continue on, let us note that this is why the call to Christian peacemaking is immediately followed by a beatitude about persecution. If Christian peacemaking was, well, let's just work really hard to get along with everybody and never, never have anybody upset with us, and never say anything that nobody would would want to hear, well, then there would never be any persecution. But because true 
peacekeeping and peacemaking is tied together with Christ's righteousness. The beatitude about peacemaking is immediately followed by the beatitude about persecution. Now, brothers and sisters, this being said, let us consider another thing which true peacekeeping is not. True peacekeeping is not being quarrelsome. It is not being quarrelsome. And there's a difference here. If we, if we boil down what we're saying so far to say God does not call us to avoid problems, God does not call us to look for problems or make problems by being quarrelsome, there's, there's a difference in that there are some texts that speak about you know sometimes there's agree to disagree matters. But when it comes to the call to not be quarrelsome, this is an absolute rule. Do not be quarrelsome. That is not peacekeeping. That is not being a peacemaker. This is the absolute. Peacemakers should never be quarrelsome. The works of the flesh, which include Galatians 5, verse 20, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, these are against the fruits of the Spirit, which include peace, peace and patience and kindness. Armies might make sneak attacks, but peacemakers should work in gentleness and kindness. Question answer 107. God wants us to love our neighbors as ourselves, to be patient, peace-loving, gentle, merciful, and friendly toward them. And those words remind us that certainly uh, peacemaking needs to reach to our heart level and that is what the other question and answers remind us of as well. It's not enough to not murder someone. It's not enough to uh, it's not enough to not be angry at them. This must go to our very heart level. You see, the beatitudes are all interrelated. We must be peacemakers even in our heart, as the beatitudes begin. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so question answer 106 especially takes it to the heart level. God hates the root of murder, envy, hatred, anger, and vengefulness. In God's sight, all such are disguised forms of murder. And so, brothers and sisters, we're called to be peacemakers. To the very heart level, we are called to be peacemakers. Now, real peace will not always be possible. Cheap peace, in a way, might be possible, but when we're seeking real peace, that's not always going to be possible. Romans 12, verse 18, If possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Peacemaking, brothers and sisters, is very difficult work. Truly, we have all broken the sixth commandment. And truly, as all of the commandments must bring us to Christ, does this commandment not bring us to Christ? 
And unlike our struggling attempts to be peacemakers for Christ, when we look at him, we look at the one who is, Isaiah chapter 9, the Prince of Peace. We find the one who knew exactly what real peace was, who knew exactly how to confront in love, who knew exactly how to forgive the heart, the one who makes peace for us through his very blood spilled out on the cross. And so we seek to be peacemakers knowing that surely this is a place where we will all stumble trusting in the only perfect man of peace. Well, brothers and sisters, when we are trusting in Christ the peacemaker, he takes us and saves us and we are God's adopted sons and daughters. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. And we have been pointing to Christ throughout the Beatitudes for those who are here the last uh, the last two Sunday evenings as well. But now as we come to our, our second point and as we come to the last Beatitude, the last double Beatitude, here we don't only need to point to Christ, here it is explicit as we shall see. Blessed are Christ's long sufferers. Now, brothers and sisters, when we speak about peacemaking, uh, sadly, that's something that needs to be true in every realm of life. And the call to be long-suffering is a broad call as, as well. And it goes to every area of life. But there is especially a focus in these last Beatitudes upon the persecution of believers by unbelievers. And so the, the focus has narrowed in that sense. And blessed are those who bear persecution who would be long-suffering in the midst of that persecution. And now remember from the introduction that blessed are the peacemakers is something that can be a shocking word to hear, especially for the zealots. But brothers and sisters, let's see something here that would be much more shocking for anybody who really heard it and picked up on it. Look at the end of verse 11. On my account. This is the beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ. How can anyone say that? How can anyone say, blessed are you when you suffer for my sake? We can't say that. Your suffering is not a blessed suffering if you suffer on my sake or for your own sake. We can't say that about ourselves. We can't say that about others that we know. 
And we know from many texts, such as Mark 9, verse 32, that the disciples did not always understand what Jesus said when he said it. I can almost picture, we don't want to speculate, but we can almost picture two people sitting at the Sermon on the Mount and one leans over to the other and says, did he really just say that? Did he really just say that suffering, you are blessed when you are suffered and reviled, if we suffer for the sake of this man, Jesus of Nazareth? Did he just claim that for himself? See, brothers and sisters, we need to point to Jesus Christ throughout all the Beatitudes, even as all of Scripture points to him. And let us see that from even the start of his ministry, Jesus knew who he was. He was the Christ. And so Jesus can say what no one else can say. Blessed are you when you suffer for me. On my account, as my faithful sufferers, as my faithful servants. You see, there are many who would say that Blessed are those who suffer for suffering's sake. That's a real temptation. You've gone through all this pain. Blessed are you for enduring pain for pain's sake. It is a real temptation to think that way. There's a temptation to think whoever is in a state of suffering is blessed for that suffering itself. Jesus says, you are blessed when you are persecuted. Verse 10, it says, for righteousness' sake. And then, and then in the parallel in verse 11, for my sake. That is when suffering is a blessing. It is not enough just to suffer. It's painful just to suffer, but that is not enough. In our suffering, and this has, again, it has a special narrow application to persecution coming against long sufferings, but really we're speaking about all suffering here for a moment. When you suffer, suffer as Christ's servant. Suffer trusting in him. And that is when suffering is blessed suffering. No other way. Did he really just say, on my account? Yes, he did. Because he is the Christ. And he can say what no one else can say. And this is exactly what our suffering should be. And then, brothers and sisters, this informs, even as Lord willing, for those who have been here, we've been pointing to Jesus all throughout. Now this informs all of the Beatitudes. Thinking about the end of verse 11, let's let's look back at all of it and know that these are not just random virtues. 
These are virtues. This is what is righteous because this is being spoken to us by Christ himself. Even as we don't want to emphasize just the red letters, all of God's word is the word given to us by God. But but let us see, this is not just some virtues thrown out here. This is a good thing. This is a good thing. No, these are good things. And it's declared by the one who is good, who knows what is good, who knows how we should be. And then look at the promises and say, these are not just random promises. This is God promising. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. And you suffer for righteousness sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And see, in the double beatitude, when, uh, when the... So we've got the, the, the balanced pattern and it's bookended by, by the present tense. There's is the kingdom of heaven in verse 3 and verse 10. So really we, we should say there's eight beatitudes, probably not nine. But the last one, it is, it is a double beatitude and it's further explained. And as Jesus gives further explanation to the blessings of those who are persecuted, he, makes, he, he takes the promise and he now expresses it in personal language. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. It's no longer they shall see God. It's no longer they shall be satisfied. Your reward. Jesus zooms in and speaks personally to those who are persecuted on his account and says, Your reward is great in heaven. And it's not just any promise. It is the true promise. Because Christ has all authority to say this. Christ has all authority to say, who is the sons of God? Who will have the rewards of heaven? It is painful when someone would suffer. This is a sin-torn, pain-filled world. But in Christ, and only there, it's a blessed suffering. And the promise is sure. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Your reward is great in heaven. And he gives also the example, the encouragement. You can endure to the end of the persecution, even if it is severely intense persecution. And that's what the mention of the prophet reminds us of. It reminds us that sometimes this persecution may be very intense. Hebrews chapter 11 summarizes this. Hebrews chapter 11, and I'm going to read from the end of verse 32 through verse 38. And the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, 
quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Whatever form the persecution will take. And sometimes God will use his prophets, will use his people to to extend the justice in his name. Other times, other times it, it will lead to intense persecution. But when we are in Christ, then whatever suffering we have is blessed suffering with the very crown of life surely promised at the end. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven,